Sawabona, and thanks for listening. My name is Jim Clark. I'm the U.S. Marketing Manager for Wines of South Africa, and this is the debut episode of our new podcast. In each episode, we'll explore some aspect of South African wine. We'll talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we'll also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. This is obviously an audio-only medium, but if you'd like to see pictures of the people I'll be talking with, maps of relevant wine regions, and some other visual aids, please go to our website, wosa.us, and click on the podcast tab. We're going to start off our series the way every good meal should start, with bubbly. Because the wines in this episode hinge on a technique, here's a quick reminder of the process that goes into making a traditional method sparkling wine, the way bubbly is made in champagne. Once the grapes are harvested and carefully pressed, the juice is fermented, yielding a dry and acidic wine. This goes into the bottle, and some yeast and sugar is added. A second fermentation then occurs inside the bottle, but this time the carbon dioxide bubbles are trapped inside the wine. The wine then sits on the dead yeast cells, called lees, for many months, which helps smooth out the bubble's texture and adds flavor to the wine. Finally, the lees are removed, and a small amount of wine and sugar is added to fill that gap. Now the wine is ready to go, sold in the same bottle that the second fermentation occurred in. Among the world's producers of traditional method sparkling wines, South Africa is the first New World country to forego riding on the coattails of Champagne's good name. Instead, they've adopted the term Method Cap Classique to designate their traditional method wines. This innovation dates back to the early 1990s, a time when democracy was coming to South Africa, embargoes were falling, and South African wine began reaching the outside world in a serious way. If we look at the category Cap Classique, The phrase or the concept of the naming was developed in 1992. That's Peter Ferreira, cellar master at Graham Beck, though some people know him as Mr. Bubbles. When the wine laws were written for Cap Classique, it was quite basic. It had really only three requirements. It had to be sold in the same bottle it was fermented, which means it is bottle-fermented sparkling wine. It had to only have a minimum of nine months on the lees, and it had to have minimum three bars of pressure. Kaplasik is a designated name that only we can use, we as in South Africans, for the process that we follow. So it's the same uh, méthode champenois, the process of champagne, with the secondary fermentation in the bottle, and we call it Cap Classique. Cap referring to the Cape, which is the Western Cape where our grapes are grown, and Classique, the traditional method. I think we've gained the most respect from the Champagne region. I'm now referring to the world of sparkling wine. I think South Africa has always had fantastic respect from the Champenoise. Because of the crayfish agreement, we never could refer to Champagne. Wait a minute, crayfish? You heard that right. The nutrient-rich waters surrounding the Western Cape support abundant marine life, and in 1935, France agreed to open the door to imports of South African crayfish and other seafood. But only if South Africa agreed to respect French geographical terms in the labeling of wine and similar products. This has become known as the Crayfish Agreement. Aside from Champagne, it explains why South Africa never produced so-called Hardy Burgundy or Chablis, and why very few South African sellers call themselves Chateau such-and-such. 
At the time of the agreement, the KWV dominated the South African wine industry, and its founder, Charles W. Kohler, was less than pleased. He felt that words like champagne and burgundy were stylistic designations rather than geographical terms. In his memoirs, he wrote that, It is many a long decade since we began to make champagne in this country, yet when this treaty came along, we were debarred from using that name and had to label our champagne by such names as Dry Dominion, Delmonico, Cuvée, and Royale, or just sparkling wine. Such names do not indicate that our wines are champagne types at all, and naturally we suffered in consequence. Well, that's all well and good, but Dry Dominion and its ilk were not champagne types by geographical or even technical standards. They weren't made using the traditional method Peter outlined before. Instead, they were forced carbonated, like soda. The first traditional method wine in South Africa only appeared in 1971, my vintage as it happens, and that wine was part of a quality revolution that was sweeping the South African wine scene at the time. Hi, I'm Johan Melon, winemaker and one of the owners of Simonsek Wine Estate in the Stellenbosch region of South Africa. Simonsek Estate is uh, in the Stellenbosch region, and it's been in our family since the time of my grandfather in 1942. And then in 1953, my father took over from his father-in-law, actually. And he also studied uh, winemaking at the University of Stellenbosch. And at that time, the common thing was for a private winery owner to make the wine and then sell it in bulk to the merchants, who then bottled it under their brands and under their labels. So it wasn't really common for a private individual to have his own bottling and his own wines under the estate label. That all started to change in the late 60s when private estates started producing their own wines and selling it directly to the consumer. At that time, my father traveled to Europe to visit some of the famous wine regions there, and he came back with the idea to make a wine in a similar style to French Champagne, but using South African grapes and using the same method to do so. At that stage, all sparkling wine were made with the carbonation method and uh, nobody's ever tried to do the traditional bottle fermentation. He started that in 1971. So actually we're looking forward to next year, 2021, when we will celebrate the 50th vintage and the anniversary of our famous Carpsofunkel. Now Carpsofunkel is the Afrikaans uh, that means sparkle of the Cape. Maybe something that um, at this point I can add is that, you know, there were a very small number of producers of bottle fermented sparkling wine in the first 20 years or so. I think the Simonsa Karpsefunkel was uh, the only one for more than 10 years. And when I started as a youngster, it was really a challenging wine to make because nobody else really had experience uh, of making Meto Champenoise. And I got uh, the idea to call some of my fellow winemakers who made Meto Champenoise. And in the late 80s, we came together and started to taste each other's base wines after the harvest. And it was amazing to see how willing all of them were to share their knowledge and their experience. And so we actually started to learn from each other. And I think that was the beginning of something that eventually ended up in us forming the Cap Classique Producers Association. Peter Ferreira, who we heard from before, is actually chairman of the association today. 
What started off as an informal tasting group has grown substantially. Graham Beck itself only released its first wines around that same time. Graham Beck's Cape Classique wines took off, and so did the whole category. If we go back to 1992, there were only 14 producers producing some uh, bubbly, of which there was only one specialist producer. It was a guy called Achim von Arnhem. He was then the winemaker at Boschendal, and uh, you know he started a little winery in Franschhoek called Clocabrieux, and he produced Pierre Jordan. So even in the early days, you know, there was a specialist producer. And this has grown tremendously. Within 28 years, we've grown from 14 members to around 250 producers producing Cap Classique. And the latest figures that we have is that we are producing just over 10 million bottles of Cap Classique. So it's a great growth. With our maiden vintage in 1991, Graham Beck started off by producing two Cap Classics. One was a house style, which was a non-vintage produced from Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And the other one was 100% Chardonnay, which is a Blanc de Blanc style. And over the years, we've grown it into having eight different Cap Classics. But when Grainbeck redeveloped the farm in the mid-80s, he did plant some other varietals. And as a true businessman, it made sense for him to actually try and add value to all the grapes rather than trying to sell grapes to a co-op, which, you know, in those days, if we go back 30 years ago, was really, you got very, very little money. And because he was an astute businessman, he decided that we should be producing all the grapes that we have on the farm in Robertson into wine. So we were in the still wine business as such. But as our still wine and the Cap Classic grew, the emphasis definitely and the sort of success was with the Cap Classic. So it was only five years ago that we decided when we got together with the board of directors and the owner, Anthony Beck, that it was the best thing to specialize. So as recently as only five years ago, we became a specialist producer of the Cap Classic. Graham Beck has grown from maybe 100,000 case operation to what will be, if we get to the full turnout, most probably in the next five years, we will be at 250,000 cases. So we currently just over a million bottles and we are growing to be just under 3 million bottles. More recently, new producers like Lulud, Saltare and Tanzanite have specialized in Cap Classique from the beginning. Jean-Philippe Comont built the first cellar in South Africa intended solely for the production of traditional method wines. Paul Herber joined him as cellar master just over a year ago. My name is Paul Herber. I'm the winemaker and oenologist for Comar Cap Classique and Champagne in Franschhoek, South Africa. Quick story about myself, a math teacher who quit his job to study winemaking and wanted to specialize in bottle fermented sparkling wine. I'm a wine lover, but a, a geek at heart and uh, Cup Classique and Champagne was was what in, enthralled me, what inspired me to study more about wine. I've worked in the north of Italy and Francia Corte in, in Champagne, in the south of Germany, making sect, and came back and started a project in South Africa and just over a year ago joined the uh, Coumont. 
Jean-Philippe is a French Belgian. He and his family moved to South Africa in the early 2000s, looking for a new life, a new challenge. And one of the things that Jean-Philippe quickly noticed was that Cap Classique was this new market that was growing. But at that stage, there wasn't really a seller making only Cap Classique. Jean-Philippe built the seller in 2005. In 2006 was the first harvest. And in fact, today we are busy completing the the final blends of 2020, the first harvest that Jean-Philippe and I have completed together. Both Jean-Philippe and I are good traditionalists, both lovers of Chardonnay. I think myself slightly more dogmatic than what Jean-Philippe is, but balance is good in life. But we work exclusively with Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and picked from specific sites in Terroirs with a certain style in mind. So when we're in a vineyard, we, we look at the potential of that vineyard to, to work with what we're trying to achieve in the house style uh, at Comment. And so we work with grape growers that understand this and strive to achieve this with us. So as a lover of Chardonnay, that's where my heart lies to create the perfect example of a Blanc de Blanc in South Africa that is typically South African. But it's really, really exciting to see what some producers are doing with other grapes like Colombard and Chenin Blanc. Personally, for me, I think Colombard could be something for the future. As a traditionalist, you can imagine it's difficult for me to look objectively at other cultivars. But I certainly think having tasted some of the, the Colombard Cap Classique out there, I really think it's something for alternative producers of Cap Classique to explore more. I think there's wonderful acidity, elegance, freshness, traits from, from this cultivar that, that show so much potential for aged Cap Classique. Specifically in the case of Loeverland, Berti Kutsia that's making a fantastic Colombar Cap Classique from his vineyard. The vineyard in Prisca, so that's almost a story on its own for a, a very unique terroir. But I, th- I think inherently Colombar in South Africa shows this ability to provide freshness and structure and elegance to Cap Classique wines. And I think it's something that will grow as Cap Classique grows in South Africa. And I definitely think it's something that more and more winemakers are investigating to either use as a blending component or as a single cultivar. And that also being said, you know, Chenin Blanc is a fantastic cultivar for Cap Classique but at times needs that kind of bristling acidity, depending on the style that you're trying to achieve. And I often wonder if the next movement of, uh, let's say, alternative Cap Classique is is that of a, a combination between Colombo and Chenin Blanc. Both cultivars that are, are very typically South African that were planted in very large volumes at times in our history. Chardonnay and Pinot Noir do remain the main varieties most producers are using for their Cap Classique these days. But experimentation with different varieties isn't unique to boutique producers like Louverland. Johan Milan's father, Franz, actually made Simonsig's first bubblies from Chenin Blanc, and they've continued to explore other possibilities. Initially, in the early years, there was no Chardonnay, no Pinot Noir available in South Africa. So for the first couple of years, he used what was available to him at that time, and that was uh, mostly Chenin Blanc. 
because South Africa grows uh, more Chenin Blanc than any other country in the world. So in a style of something that's maybe closer to the, the sparkling wines from Vouvray in the Loire Valley, he used Chenin Blanc. And it was only much later, during the time when I was already in the cellar making the wine in 1987, we changed the composition of the, the cuvee and the blend to use Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, very similar to what the wines of Champagne they use. We were also interested to see what Pinot Minia does in South Africa, and we were the first to grow this variety in our own vineyards and from the 1997 vintage we also started to blend in some Pinot Minier in the Carpsofunkel. So at this stage uh, we're using three grape varieties, mostly Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and a little bit of uh, Pinot Minier. Interestingly enough this year for the first time I got hold of some Pinot Blanc so there's something in the pipeline I just wanted to see what the possibilities are of using Pinot Blanc and managed to acquire some grapes from another grower in the Stellenbosch region so it's interesting because they say that some of these lesser known varieties might become more interesting and more important in the future due to climate change. And one thing I did see with the Pinot Blanc is that it's got very prominent acidity. So that's already uh, tickled my interest. There was a point in time when we had a big shortage of Pinot Noir and finding enough grapes to use in Cap Classique. And so I got the idea that let's do an experiment with some Pinotage because it's a crossing between Pinot Noir and Sinzo. So genetically, half of the grape is the same as Pinot Noir. So we made a small batch of Pinotage in 2004. And the funny thing was when I wanted to use it in the Carpsofunkel blend with the Chardonnay, Pinot Minier and Pinot Noir, it was really difficult. It just wouldn't fit in. So out of desperation, I eventually bottled the wine separately with a bit of Pinot Noir blended in. And we offered it to a specific buyer who liked it and he took the whole vintage in one go. So that was how our Carpsofunkel uh, Brut Rosé was born. The interesting thing is that Pinot Noir has a small berry, but a thin skin. Pinotage has a similarly small berry, but the skins are really thick and very almost leathery. So in that thick skin, it contains a huge amount of color. So when you do the pressing of, of Pinotage, you have to be particularly careful. But because we're working with the rosé, a little bit of the Pinotage color does help the rosé to uh, get its correct uh, dark intensity of pink color. Pinotage has a really good uh, acidity and structure. So from that point of view, it works well as a cuvee. And of course, we all know Pinotage is intensely fruity. So it gives us a lot of strawberry and, and red berry fruit. That is what we are looking for in the Brut Rosé. In terms of the the texture of the wine, I would definitely say that the Pinotage is maybe a bit more robust and muscular than the Pinot Noir. So at this stage, we're using roughly about 30% of the Pinotage and the balance being Pinot Noir and a touch of Pinot Minier. So it brings fruit, it's got acidity, it gives a bit of the desired color, but careful not to overdo it because you might lose some of the finesse and the elegance that we get from the Pinot Noir.
If you know these wineries, and if you like bubbly, you should, you may have noticed that they're each from a different area of South Africa. Simonsig is in Stellenbosch, Comont in Franschhoek, and Grambeck in Robertson. Producers all over South Africa's Western Cape are making Cap Classique these days. Franschhoek is home to several Cap Classique specialists, but Robertson probably has the highest density. That's because it's a great place to grow Chardonnay. We are very fortunate that 80% of all our fruit that we grow is estate grown in our property in Robertson. Robertson is a very special area and we need a sort of a separate time to actually discuss the value of and the sort of geological advantages of Robertson. But put it in a nutshell, Robertson has three advantages. It's got fantastic sunshine. It's got limestone soils and it has a huge day and night temperature shift, which is known as the dynal shift, which will give us at least 30 degrees during summer. So we can have a 100 degree day and at nighttime it will be less than 70. So that does give the, the vineyards the opportunity to sort of recover after a warm day. But also this is the way we can preserve natural acidity in the juice. There's a long list of guys that's buying in the area. It's not only specialist cup classic producers, wineries starting up just focusing on cup classic, which I really are extremely excited about. But obviously the bigger players and those who are doing a little bit more volume, they all do source grapes from Robertson. Verticulturally, it has its challenges because of the warmness and things like that. But with global warming, I think everybody has respect for heat, you know, and you just have to really understand it. And we have a motto or sort of an understanding that we, we will always talk that we manage the sunshine. We don't need to chase brightness, but we do have to chase the sun when it comes closer to harvesting. It's rewarding to know that other producers are also seeing the value of the fruit from Robertson. But currently, I know of 28 geographical wards that grows grapes and where other winemakers do source grapes for Cap Classique, which makes it quite diverse. We have a huge diversity in our soils. You know, we have very complex and different soils within walking distance. You can't say Stellenbosch has only one type of soil, Paul has got one type Robertson's got one type. Uh, on one stretch, less than a mile long, we can show you 11 different soils in Robertson, you know, so it's it's quite complex. And I think this is the beauty that we have diverse geographical locations where grapes are sourced for Cap Classique in South Africa. Even with 80% of being self-sufficient in Robertson for Graham Beck, I do believe without the outside grapes that we do source, we are not moving forward. So it's an important part of our uh, blending program is to have different grapes from other areas. With Cap Classique production doubling every five years, the Producers Association has realized the need to make sure all producers are working to a high standard. Not just the specialists, but also those who make a small amount of Cap Classique for their tasting room or wine club. To that end, they've worked to educate winemakers on best practices and to tighten regulations on matters that affect wine quality. We have realized that we needed to start 
working on the quality principles. First of all, we got our house in order. We started a base wine tasting. It is a little bit more like a peer review where once a year, normally end of April, beginning of May, every producer can come to a workshop and we will openly discuss the quality of the base wines, whether they are single identities or final blends that will go to the bottle. But at least the winemaker then had an opportunity to tweak it or definitely improve it before it went into the bottle. And we've seen this has helped uh, a lot for the general quality perception of the final Cup Classics. We've also realized that we, like in Champagne and other areas, we knew of an idea to extend the time on the lease. Champagne's gone from 12 to 15 months. The Francia Corta in Italy has different classifications. And even the Cava producers now are referring to extra time on the lease and, you know, trying to up the, the quality image of the categories. So we approached the Wine and Spirits Board and they said, well, that's all fine. It sounds fantastic, but where's the data? So we approached the Wine Tech in Stellenbosch and they gave us funds for research that we had to do. So we did a three-year research where we looked at the influence of time on the lease to the end quality result of our Cup Classiques. And I guess it's not rocket science, but definitely we have seen over time it was real. And we realized that we could now address the time on the lease issues. It's a long and slow boat to turn around when you speak about wine laws. But we are in the process at the moment where from the 2021 vintage, to call it Cup Classic, you will have to keep your wines a minimum of 12 months on the lease. Further on to that, with the research we've done, we realized that we might have to develop a tier system that you have a basic ruling for Cup Classique, which will obviously in future be 12 months on the lease, three bars of pressure, same bottle going into market. And there's a definite ask for another category. Let's call it maybe the elite category or the prestige category where we will have to transcribe a sustainable scoring audit that you will have to fill in, where we would then have extra ruling, like it has to be a whole bunch picked by hand, a whole bunch pressed. You have to separate the quality juice from the pressed juice. And this definitely, we all know, does add to the final quality of Cup Classic. But minimum requirements are just that, a starting point. Many producers already exceed those requirements, and some by a country mile. Grand Beck's wines see 15, 40, or even 60 months or more of aging on the lees. And individual wineries are also developing their own techniques to move the category to the next level. At Colmont, Herber and Jean-Philippe have made extended lees aging an intrinsic part of their program. They're also researching aging wines on their lees with a cork stopper rather than the crown cap that has become the norm for most traditional wines around the world. Vintage champagnes for Jean-Philippe and myself and vintage Cup Classique that we're trying to achieve is really about long aging. And one of the things that we're striving to achieve is that our non-vintage blend, our house blend, 
is aged for 36 months. So our brute reserve, which is um, available in most retail outlets, is a, a blend of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir aged for 36 months, where our Blonde de Blanc, which is one of our flagship wines, is aged for five to seven years. And what we're trying to show there is that South African Cup Classiques have this ripeness, this fruit, this fullness to their character, but there is also enough acidity, enough elegance, enough balance for the wines to age. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I think time is one of those things that tests wine, but definitely tests Cup Classique and Champagne. And the, the elegance and the finesse with which the wines age is important. And so at Comar, we are certainly striving to, to create wines or to sculpt wines that show longer aging, show more finesse, more elegance. One of the things that really fascinated me was the ability of cork to have a positive impact on the, the pearlescence or the texture of a bubble. And in the past in Champagne, our graph was used uh, for aging the sparkling wines on cork. And we've incorporated this to what we are doing with Cup Classique in South Africa. And we've seen phenomenal results from both Chardonnay and Pinot Noir aged on cork. But definitely wines, again, that are aged five to seven, maybe eight years, show better characteristics from the cork. And I think, in short, essentially what is happening is the cork is giving components to the wine that allow the mousse to be more persistent, but definitely the bubble to have a, a kind of pearlescence or a softness in the texture of the bubble. Being a member of the Cup Classic Association, we're taking part in a lot of research projects, obviously, to improve what we are doing in our production processes. But specifically on the graph, we've taken a project over the last five years looking at the maturation of Cup Classic with core contact. And we see some really exciting results that we're sharing with the researchers in Champagne and also looking to collaborate with them further on studying this positive effect that cork has on wine. And whilst there are a lot of risks that come with using cork, we, we certainly feel that especially for Cup Classique and Champagne, there are a lot of positives for, for the bubble and improving the bubble. So Cup Classique is really on the I almost want to say on the forefront of this push in this specific field of research. With so many different techniques and approaches going on, is there a definitive style of Cap Classique? Despite the bubbles, Cap Classique is a wine, so is Champagne for that matter, and good wine should reflect where it's grown, something South African should come through in the glass. As in um, anything where there's artistic element involved, there are different styles. And, and certainly in Cap Classique, I think the two main streams that you see developing in Cap Classique in South Africa are slightly more fruit-profiled style, showing a lot more fruit character, a lot more evolution in the wines, less reductive, softer, smoother wines. It's a wonderful style that shows... Typically, the, the ripeness and the elegance of the warmer ripening condition that we have in South Africa. And I think there's a the softness and suppleness to those wines that has a really big following in South Africa. And then also, which is maybe a little more typically what we are trying to do at Kumar, is uh, leaner, slightly fresher, elegant wines po poised on acidity, slightly shyer wines. 
But I certainly believe there's place for both styles. I think each style is an, an expression that's attached to the philosophy of the winemaking at the house. And for Jean-Philippe and I that enjoy uh, leaner, fresher, that kind of nice bristling acidity that drives the wine on the palate, that's what we try to achieve with the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noirs that we work with. We use the same grape varieties, we use the same methods very much to the letter with whole bunch pressing or hand picking whole bunch pressing and then separating the juice into the cuvee and the tie and cool fermentations. Uh, so from that point of view, we try to follow the rules and I think it's crucial and so important when you're aiming to produce something of high quality. But in the end, we never try to make a copy of champagne. It would be futile because climatically they've got a very cold, marginal climate being very far north and uh, soils that are very different to ours. So the idea is that we want to make Cutlassique that is a reflection of our own conditions and our own climate, our own soils and the South African um, terroir have one major difference compared to, well, talking about champagne specifically, is that we have a, a lot of sunshine and that means we get really good ripeness. And I always think that you should be able to taste the sunshine in the wine. So I think Cup Classique, in our case, I always want to have it maybe a bit more expressive on the fruit side. Champagne will always be the icon. It will always be the the benchmark reference in any winemaker's mind. Uh, so we respect it highly. But we always say if people don't want to do champagne on that day, they have to try Cup Classique. I think as a category, we can handsomely take some wines around the world and really showcase some that is sometimes even better than champagne. To get a U.S. perspective on Cap Classique, I spoke to James Tidwell. James is the co-founder of Texom, also known as the Texas Sommelier Conference. James, you first went to South Africa in 2012, right? I did. I first went to South Africa in 2012 to attend Cape Wine. And had you been exposed to Cap Classique before that? Only marginally through some restaurants that I'd worked in, but had never really experienced it as a category of such. It was more individual wines on occasion, and it was something of a unique prospect even then because it was not as widely available. Right. And these days we see actually quite a number of brands here in the U.S., which is great. What were your first experiences with the category then? Well, my real first experience was at Cape Wine, where I had opportunity to taste numerous examples of MCC wines. And the real experience from that was the overall quality of the wines and getting a sense of the style, which I think is still evolving, but certainly gave impressions from that experience. Do you want to kind of trace us through what you see happening uh, with the category? As a category... And I certainly didn't have experience with the very early years, having been born the same year that uh, Simensig first produced traditional methods sparkling wine. 
Me too. I have seen, yes, I have seen some evolution in style, even in my short time experiencing the wines. I think the early days from what I heard were marked by fairly overt, fruit forward, generous wines. I have seen this evolution even in these few years of even more delicacy, finesse, and uh, a concentration on freshness, even with those generous, creamy fruit notes that you get from a warmer climate, which generally South Africa is. I understand that there are areas that are certainly cooler there, but with the warmer climate, you do get this generosity, but at the same time, the wineries are now focusing on this freshness that goes with it and a real liveliness to the wines that adds a delicacy and finesse. I think that concentrating on traditional grape varieties, picking times, processing, since sparkling wine is a wine of process, has really resulted in higher quality wines overall. Some of the finest sparkling wines in the world able to rival the standard bearers in the category. By traditional varieties, I mean varieties that would be uh, referenced from its home region, which most of us consider to be Champagne. And those would be Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. I think that while any grape variety can be used in MCC, those are the ones that most people are focusing on. However, I have heard that other grape varieties are showing great promise in South Africa. And I think that spirit of innovation is one of the hallmarks of many New World regions, but certainly in South Africa. I've seen this across all categories of wine in South Africa, and I think it applies to the sparkling wine category as well, with MCC being the obvious leader. And that has been the real takeaway for me in watching this evolution over a period of eight to ten years. Are there any other unique aspects to Cap Classique that you've come across that you think represents the category in some ways? I think that South Africa fits that bridge, which many of us in the wine industry have talked about for years, between the styles of Europe and the styles of many of the New World regions or the Western and Southern Hemispheres, we might say. It has this remarkable balance across the range of the MCCs that I've tasted of generous fruit and ripeness without going to the point of being overripe and balancing that with a freshness and a creaminess and a delicacy that really melds some of the best of both of those other worlds, the new world, old world scenario that so many people in the wine industry have talked about for years. I think South Africa is one of the leaders in the idea that that dichotomy is changing and that, in fact, it may not be old world and new world anymore, but rather something more towards a balance. And let's face it, the best wines in the world are defined by their balance. So before we set up this interview, I sent over a few Cap Classiques for you to get caught up on the category, show you some ones maybe you hadn't tasted recently. What impressions do these wines make on you? I think that this was a wonderful tasting to, to see what's going on now in South Africa. And I did taste them with a couple of other sparkling wines. And 
and it fits what I have said before about being a beautiful bridge because you have a style with Simensig that is is more generous. It's a beautiful style of wine. It has a freshness to it, but it definitely has a, a fruit aspect to it that is highlighted in it, and it's this gorgeous ripe fruit. Moving from that into Graham Beck, you would get with this Blanc de Blanc and some Lee's aging of four years, a richness and a toastiness and a generosity as well, but even more of the freshness to balance, the crispness to balance the wine. And then moving from there into Lomarin, this is again Blanc de Blanc and four years on the Lee's, but at this point, more of a oak note to it because the wines were fermented partially in oak. And it adds this real creaminess to the wine. It's a beautiful palate feel. And yet at the end, it doesn't feel heavy at all. It's just so light and gorgeous with a harmonious balance to it from the freshness and the delicacy. So... I think these show a nice range of styles, and yet none of them are on the fringes of being too austere or too overripe. They fit a nice profile that, as I said, is that beautiful middle ground of of balance and harmony. And yes, there's a variation in the styles of these wines, as there will be in any category, and yet they all display a remarkable balance to them of those various aspects that we already talked about. James, why should people buy a Cap Classique wine as opposed to seeking out Franciacorta or other types of sparkling wine? One of the great advantages of MCC is the price. And while we concentrate on quality with all wines, one can never completely differentiate that from from its price category and we have to remember that mcc is a quality wine in the league of other standard bearers in the category champagne french accorda uh, u.s sparkling wines and at the same time one can get mccs for a much better value in terms of dollars spent than some of those categories. And so really MCC represents a great value that allows it to be not just a special occasion wine, but rather also an everyday wine, certainly multiple time a week wine if you want to have that. It's a value that allows one to have it with a meal, which those of us in the wine industry constantly talk about Sparkling wine shouldn't be reserved for before the meal or after the meal or as a special occasion. It's a wine. You can drink it with a meal. And I've had some spectacular combinations of sparkling wines and foods. So this actually allows you to drink sparkling wine at any meal every day of the week. That brings us to the end of our first episode. Thank you very much for listening. You can find more resources and links to the producers we spoke with, Texom, and other topics at our website, wosa.us. I've also included a link to the United Sommelier Foundation. A lot of restaurants around the U.S. are struggling right now. If you can, please look into ways to help them out, 
We'd all like to have some nice places to eat once we get outside of our houses and apartments again. And if you're a fan of wine, consider supporting the United Sommelier Foundation. They're working to keep the community of dedicated sommeliers out there afloat during these trying times. I've included a link on our website. Please take a look. Finally, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover our podcast and discover South African wines. We'll be back next week to take on a region that's making some of South Africa's most exciting Chenin Blancs and Mediterranean-style red blends. We'll talk about why it was overlooked for so long, how it came roaring back into the spotlight, and what makes the wines so special. Next week, it's the Swartland. <laughs>